Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence, those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week, we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. My name is Joanne Perry. Welcome to today's podcast. We are welcoming Laura Linda Scholler today. Ms. Linda Scholler is Sexual Violence Prevention Program Coordinator here at McAllister College in St. Paul. Welcome. We're delighted to have you as part of our ongoing commitment to be a voice for justice, non-militarism, and social change. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your work. We were talking earlier about growing into pacifism and how you came to believe or to live a life that was had intrinsic to its nature the principle of doing no harm. So why don't you tell us about how your your first awareness is of growing into this, these concepts. I work with a student volunteer group called uh, the Sexual Assault Resource Network on, on our campus. Um, and I completed a 40-hour training to become a county sexual violence survivor advocate. Um, and that was my first experience really as an advocate for nonviolence and for preventing and responding to, in particular, sexual violence. Um, And that was a powerful and transformational experience for me as an undergraduate. I uh, also identify as a sexual violence survivor. And so that also has drawn me to the work that I do now um, in a higher education setting and as I still serve and volunteer outside of my role as McAllister as a county survivor advocate for Ramsey County, and very much in the work that I do as a sexual violence prevention program coordinator and working in Title IX at McAllister College. You have a remarkable background. Mm -hmm. I do not wish to bring up pain to you, but is there a story maybe you could tell us about what pulled your passion into this work. Yes, absolutely. I share this story, I share my personal connection to the issue of sexual violence and prevention work um, at many of the trainings that I lead on campus, which is a part of my role leading student trainings. So I'll share a little bit about what I share with students. I often will say, uh, you know, I grew up in a family and in a culture and in an educational system that didn't talk much about our bodies, more so, you know, in schools and and in larger culture and society about our bodies and healthy relationships, particularly about healthy, intimate relationships and partnerships. And so when I had an experience of being sexually assaulted, uh, I didn't know how to talk about it or who to turn to. And I, it took me almost eight years to tell family and friends about that experience and for that time I carried that thinking as I now know most survivors of sexual violence do thinking that that was unique to me and that was my fault and I carried guilt and shame around that 
as soon as through my own advocacy training and my kind of increasing engagement in education around sexual violence prevention, I learned and came to accept that what happened to me was not my fault, that it was not okay, and that people who know how to talk about violence and about healthy relationships and about consent are valuable and that work is important for all of us to do. And so that deeply calls me to the work that I do now. And I explain to students that's why I feel it's important for me to talk about my personal connection to this work because survivors and people who've experienced sexual violence in particular are stigmatized and silenced and shamed in our society. And so the more that my personal belief is the more that we can talk about the violence that occurs and how to prevent it, the more effective we'll be at working to end violence. Thank you for doing this remarkable work. My heart is just glowing with pride that you've made it this far. And you can say those words that sound so short, those, mm. I realized it wasn't my fault. Mm. And you can say them with a straight face and with belief, belief in your heart. And my guess is that over the years you've become very good with the language of violence and giving people permission to come to those conclusions much, much quicker mm. than you did. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I also want to acknowledge that that's been a decade in the works for me as a learning process and a healing journey. And I'm so grateful and thankful for the, the amazing advocates and allies and educators and social justice warriors who have taught me the skills and given me the language to do that, both personal gratitude for that in my own healing and in growing my ability to share those resources particularly at a college. Amazing. Thank you. What does a coordinator in sexual violence prevention actually do? Do you teach classes? Do you give workshops? Do you go counseling? I have no clue. Great question. It looks a little different at every college and university, but here at McAllister, uh, my role comprises of leading trainings and education um, for students and staff and faculty. So, for example, when every incoming student or transfer or exchange student comes to McAllister and joins our community, we are required by state and federal law to provide some training and education around what Title IX is, what our campus sexual misconduct policies are, what consent is, affirmative consent, what that looks like, what we expect of members of our community in terms of conduct and community values. And then we also, as part of that training, provide information on bystander intervention, which is, we know uh, through research, one of the most effective ways at preventing sexual violence, particularly in a college setting. And so I, I work to lead those trainings. I work with our student organizations and student volunteers on campus who are interested in getting engaged in that work. So one example of that is I work with a group on campus called our Sexy Educators, who are our, it's a group of about 10 um, Students who volunteer their time to also go through a great amount of training to be sexual health peer educators on campus. So they go into every first year residence hall on campus over the course of uh, each September and provide about an hour of sexual health education, training, workshops. And so I help advise those students and I lead our bystander intervention program on campus. So we use a national program called Green Dot Bystander Intervention. Uh, it's used about on about 500 college campuses across the country. So we adopted that 
maybe four or five years ago. And so I and my office of Title Line and Equity, uh, we help lead a one to two trainings that are for students on campus a semester. And those are free, day-long trainings that students volunteer to participate in, but are very much active skill-building opportunities to learn how to be an active bystander and responding to situations that might have the potential for violence. Another part of my job is I am a deputy Title IX coordinator, which means that I meet with students and staff and faculty who are reporting experiences of sexual violence. So I will meet with students or staff or faculty, largely students, who have had an experience of sexual violence, sexual harassment, stalking, intimate partner violence. And I, my job is to talk with them about their opportunities and their options and resources. So I speak with them about what on-campus resources are able to provide them, what they're able to access off-campus in terms of maybe counseling or advocacy or medical attention. And then my job is to offer all of those options and explain that they have the option to um, opt into any of those that I can help facilitate connections with resources. I explain our on-campus processes for filing a report or a complaint about a sexual misconduct issue and then help connect them with those resources. I'm going to go back just a little bit. I do understand that bystander training is essential and you mentioned the Green Dot program. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me what their focus is or how they get skills across to people in a single day as to how to be effective in the prevention or witness of violence? That's a great question. So my understanding of the Green Dot program and bystander intervention education at large is that it was responding to a, a social cultural need for ways to get more people involved in preventing sexual violence in particular than what previous sexual violence prevention initiatives had looked like, which primarily in the 70s, 80s, maybe even 90s, um, looked like risk reduction for what now we would call, you know, potential victims of violence. So what that often looked like was providing self-defense classes for women at a college, right? Understanding that there are risks here, how you act and move in the world and conduct yourself to try and be more safe. What research and experience, particularly in higher education, showed us is that not only was that not addressing the perpetrators of violence, but that that was creating some really problematic messaging around victim blaming. So if you went to a self-defense class and a month later were sexually assaulted, the messages that were internalized is that somehow you did something wrong or you weren't fighting back hard enough. And so as a field of sexual violence prevention, um, there was this call to do more, to turn away from putting the work of preventing violence on potential victims of that violence and finding ways to incorporate more of our community. So, it, so it's seen not on a campus as just my responsibility as a professional to prevent violence, but it's seen as all of our responsibility. So the fundamental pedagogical foundation of bystander intervention says that we are all just by moving through our violent world, at some point or another going to witness either active violence or the potential for violence. So on a college campus, we talk about scenarios where perhaps you're a student, you're at a party, you see someone slip something into another person's drink. Or maybe you're walking across the quad and you see someone hit another person. In that moment, you're a bystander. And so our training is really 
talking about how to assess situations of violence, how to assess how to safely intervene when it's appropriate, and then ways to do that. So we give what we call the three Ds of intervention. So that's intervening directly, maybe going up and saying something to someone like what you're saying or doing is not acceptable, providing a distraction to that situation, or delegating, reaching out and finding someone else to get involved in the situation. So in those trainings, although it is only a day long, students do a lot of role-playing scenarios and a lot of personal reflection on how they individually can take responsibility for preventing violence in our community. The message that we use here at McAllister, our, our sort of slogan for the Green Dot program is, no one has to do everything, but everyone has to do something. That's very nice. I'm glad that work is happening. Mm -hmm. My heart is just beaming <laughs> that everything doesn't have to be direct action, yes. that there are other options out there. Well, Thank what you. we've found on campus has been tremendously powerful for giving students a voice and a sense that they have the ability to do something. I think it would be naive in this day and age to think that any student can come to college not knowing that sexual violence is a problem. Students are confused and overwhelmed by how to address that as individuals and so eager to make change. And so I think this gives them a clear, tangible avenue for creating positive change in their community. It also, I, I love the idea of a voice. It's not hard to imagine a woman having a drink or two drinks or three drinks and seeing something that wasn't quite right but not coordinating it together and then feeling guilty the rest of her life because something else happened. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad of these programs. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. I want to go just a little bit back. You've talked a great deal about what you can do as part of your position for sexual violence um, prevention coordinator. And I know I mixed up all those adjectives. <laughs> it's a long title. <laughs> but what do we? What happens with the alleged perpetrator? Uh, because if you've got a victim, you've got a victimizer. And what is in this for him or her? Yeah, thank you. So my role is housed in our office of Title IX and Equity, and Title IX is it's actually only a one sentence law that was passed as part of the Title Title IX amendments the 1972 educational amendments. And so Title IX is essentially about access to education and how that pertains to sexual violence is that all higher education institutions, colleges, universities that receive federal funding have an obligation to ensure that a student isn't unable to access their educational opportunities because of violence or harassment or discrimination that they're experiencing. And so essentially our work is about equity um, and ensuring that all of our campus policies around sexual misconduct um, and our policies and procedures for how we respond to reports of misconduct are equitable and fair and just. And that applies to everyone involved in that process. We specifically on campus use the terms of complainant and respondent. And that's to be very clear about the distinctions between our on-campus processes around Title IX and the criminal or civil processes of, uh, of justice around sexual assault, because those are very different systems and processes, and we, as a college campus, can't find someone guilty of a crime. What we do is we determine through investigations whether or not a student or a member of our community has violated our misconduct policy. And so our misconduct policy applies equally to all students, staff, 
faculty and employees. McAllister is actually known and highly respected across the country for having a very comprehensive and inclusive and equitable sexual violence prevention policy and Title IX process. I am very conscious in this day and age of these ongoing reports of in the level of sexual misconduct amongst our celebrities, our politicians, mm-hmm. our actors, our newscasters, for that matter. Pretty much every powerful man out there seems to be under scrutiny at the moment. I wouldn't call it attack, but I would not call it fair to call it trial by media, which is, at least right now, seems to be what's going on. Mm-hmm. So there is a piece of me that wants to be sure that things are fair and equitable. Mm-hmm. And if someone is guilty of sexual misconduct, I would hope, and I might be wrong here, that there is an educational process or program to bring him or her back into the fold. It is very obvious to me that it is easy to make misjudgments, to misread signals. I know it's not perfect in any, any world sense, but I don't, I want to. I want hope that there it will be fair and not totally one-sided. Yeah, absolutely. Oh well, that's where I think much of the complexity of the Title IX system. It's a exceptionally complex and often confusing system and process and language, and we work really hard here at McAllister to be as transparent and communicative about what the language of Title IX law is and what our obligations as a college and a community are to to protect all of our students and members. But there is that complexity because incidents and reports of of violence impact more than just the two or more people involved, right? And so we always, we take it very seriously thinking about the implications of sanctions or of the way that we as a college respond to reports of sexual violence and thinking about how will this impact the lives of the students or people involved and how does this impact our larger community? in the ways that we do or don't respond, and students' perceptions of safety and of justice and of equity um, and of our care for violence and nonviolence as an institution. Well, I am becoming increasingly aware that McAllister has earned its respect uh, in the community uh, on its Title IX and its sexual violence prevention programs, because if even one more is as thoughtful as you. I can't imagine you haven't made great strides across this entire campus. And I believe that the work you do here impacts a lifetime for a lot of people. Mm. That's one of the reasons I was drawn to working in higher education and student affairs, is because it's such a beautiful and pivotal time for the students that we work with, who are formulating their sense of values and their ideas about the change they want to make in the world. And that's a powerful thing. I also want to note, I I have been here at McAllister for two and a half years, but I'm deeply indebted to the work of my predecessors in the Title IX office. And I also want to note that sexual violence prevention, particularly at McAllister, I have seen this as a a unique quality of our community, is deeply and inherently collaborative. So it's not just the work of the Title IX office, but our health and wellness center and our residential life staff and our student affairs staff as a whole work and are deeply committed to this as well. You believed in nonviolence for a lifetime. You were raised in this stuff, mm-hmm. seeped in it, to mm-hmm. be honest. Can you tell us a time that you fell short of being the activist you really wanted to be? Then what happened? Yes, 
Yes, I can. Um, you know, I'm racking my brain to think of times because there are many times. Um, this is ongoing work and progress. I think, I think I'm highly aware of this question, working in the field that I do, because it's such an overwhelming and pervasive problem in our society. So I think about the work that I do here on campus, and I think about the violence that happens, how to respond to and prevent it. And then I leave work and I go home and I'm surrounded by a culture of violence and examples, as you were noting earlier, from our mass media and from our elected officials, particularly in this moment. And it's overwhelming and it's daunting. Part of what keeps me inspired to do this work are the activists and the allies and the advocates who who surround me, who particularly in the Twin Cities, who have been active in organizing protests and leading awareness campaigns and encouraging survivors to share their stories as appropriate as they feel called to, who have pushed for ways to hold people in positions of power accountable. And sometimes that feels like an overwhelming job. And it's also work that's deeply emotionally draining. And so in the field of sexual violence prevention, in the field of Title IX work and higher education, there's a tremendous rate of burnout of people who strive to find that balance of the endless and daunting fight against violence and ways to prevent that. And also the desire to maintain a healthy whole life balance as whole centered people. And so I occasionally, I'll share a recent example. I have some close friends, folks who are active in a nonprofit organization called Break the Silence, uh, which provides an opportunity for survivors of sexual violence to share their story and to name themselves as survivors as a form of healing. It can be for some people. And I have a number of friends in particular who are so active in organizing and leading protests and of creating community gathering spaces for survivors. And sometimes I'll look at the work that they're doing and think that I'm not doing enough, which is true. I, I feel I can never do enough to combat sexual violence in particular. But I've also realized that the people who I admire and respect who do nonviolence work, who do sexual violence prevention work, are, are folks who are able to see this as a lifelong journey and process and find ways to do that work sustainably. That is absolutely right on. You burn out or you get lit higher. Mm -hmm. You know, there isn't much middle ground mm -hmm. when you find yourself saying, oh my God, I've got to go do this and that and the other thing and there's just too much and I just really want to go crawl into bed and read a book mm -hmm. and let the world go by. You have to have that passion to drag you out of bed into the march or to the telephone or to whatever needs to be done at that moment. Absolutely. And maybe we should be rethinking what our heroes and sheroes, as, as Angela would have said, mm -hmm. that what they look like and what they do and... Sometimes I see a poster every so once in a while that says to be a hero does not mean going out and killing the poor dragon. What it means is getting up every day and feeding it. <laughs> yes. yes, absolutely. Okay. I want to go to one more major question as far as my heart is concerned, and that is looking around you right now and knowing that you know advocates and you know people who are actively engaged in the world. But let's step out of the activist role for a moment. Let's take a look at the broader population to who's watching the media, 
And I would assume it's really greatly split, husband and wife, male and female, across America's bedrooms while they're watching television right now. But really, what work would you like people who haven't picked up the activism baton yet Mm -hmm. and started charging forward? What would you like to see them doing? For me personally, one of the major ways that I think about nonviolence work is through education, which obviously drives the work that I do here on a college campus. But I'm passionate about that in my personal life as well. So I think one of the best ways that we can work to prevent sexual violence in particular is to have conversations with our friends and family, with children that we interact with. I have Most, many of my family and friends work as educators in some capacity or as caregivers. And I see it as such important work to have those active conversations about healthy relationships and about communication and about consent. And often when we hear the term consent, people think of sex or sexual relationships. But I've been having really powerful conversations with friends and family about how um, the larger notion of consent, so how we think about individual people's agency and autonomy and the respect that we have for that in personal and in physical and in spiritual and in professional ways, and reframing the conversations that we have, because that's an important part of preventing violence. And also, to reflect on my own personal story, my hope is that for every conversation I have with someone that's important in my life... I'm sending them the message that I'm someone safe to talk to, that I care about them, and that if something were to happen, that I will believe them, I will support them, I will stand by them. I am, to this day, very amazed when we were pounding feminism into ourselves back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, that we didn't think of our sons. And I am somewhat appalled of my peer group that did not talk to their sons to say... When you hear the word no, it means no wherever you are and whatever you're doing. No means no. To proceed further would mean you would be a rapist. And I do not know why people didn't teach their children that. And I know that all sexual assault is not penetration. But I think we have an obligation as as humans on this planet to to raise the bar of awareness. And I, I can see that your work will help do that. So I'm grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you. Now we're going to get to some of the wonderful questions our producers came up with. Um, So, do you think students fear getting involved with sexual violence preventive programs like the ones at McAllister's? Students seem to shy away from the mention of the term or don't want to acknowledge it happens. Do you know why this is and what can happen to change it? Yes. Well, first I want to start by just noting that in my personal experience, students who come to college and students I've met in other capacities are actually quite eager to talk about these things. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that we as a culture, as part of our K-12 education system, in religious communities, in families, don't do a great job of and don't make a regular practice of talking about our sexuality and our bodies and our relationships in healthy ways that aren't over-sexualized or hyper-violent. And so I see students coming to campus very eager to engage in conversations about consent and about sexual violence prevention. Um, I think about my work just this semester, this fall semester on campus, and I have had 
so many individual students and groups reach out to me asking if we can do more or how they can get in, engaged and involved. And that's something that I like to share because I think that is counter to the perception of young people and how they want to or don't want to engage in these conversations. I think students grapple with poor or a lack of education around talking about issues of violence. So part of what we aim to do here at McAllister is to give every student the vocabulary to be able to have nuanced and informed conversations about their relationships and their bodies and their sexuality. Because the more that we can talk about those things and give students the capacity and the vocabulary to do that, the more they're going to feel empowered to, to have a voice in their relationships. I remember reading years ago that the single biggest contributor to sexual violence was the use of alcohol on campus. Mm-hmm. Is that still true today or have things changed? We do see alcohol involved in many of our reports and incidents of sexual violence here on campus. However, we also do a lot of education with our students in particular about our norms around alcohol and substance use on campus. So we make it very clear that alcohol is not an excuse for and does not negate responsibility for the decision to hurt someone, to commit an actual sexual violence or harassment or stalking, etc. Um, students under our sexual misconduct policy are held responsible for their actions if they violate our misconduct policy, regardless of whether or not there have been substances involved. And we do a lot of training and education to say that the responsibility for sexual assault and for rape is not alcohol. I can make the choice to use substances and alcohol and still make the choice not to commit violence. The only responsibility for sexual violence is with the person who makes the decision to enact that violence. Very cohesive answer. Thank you very much. And lastly, violence is oftentimes viewed as a purely physical action that is either done between two equal parties or one party that holds more power over the other. And there seems to be a lot of people who don't understand why gently stroking someone where they don't want to be touched can be considered violent based on preconceived notions of what violence is. Why is it important both to include words and emotions in the definition of violence? And if you're willing, can you go, why is, it, why is groping and non-consensual touching violent? Sure. Well, when we talk about violence here on campus, we talk about sexual violence as being rooted in power and control. It's taking agency and choice away from another person. And so that helps us reframe violence as larger than just physical violence, as more than hitting or penetration. When you're taking agency and control away from someone in their choice whether or not to be touched or in the form of emotional manipulation, That is an act of violence because you are taking, again, that agency away from someone and their personal integrity and their ability to make choices for themselves and about their bodies. Today we have been honored to interview and speak with Laura Linder Scholler, who is the sexual violence prevention coordinator here at McAllister College in St. Paul. It has been a real honor and a treat. Thank you so much for joining us. Peace. for listening to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. 
To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651 917 0383.